you're not going to be happy when, right? I thought I'll be happy when I finish residency. And it's really important just to be happy now, to you know, do something that you love, to be in a place that you love, to be around people who make you feel good about yourself. And so I think prioritizing yourself and your happiness is really important. Hello, and welcome to Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast. I'm Dr. Jen Barna, and I'm so excited about today's episode. My guest is Dr. Joanne Steckler, an infectious disease doctor and researcher at the University of Washington, considered a national expert on the topic of HIV testing and prevention. She started the first community-based clinic for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis in Seattle, and is working to increase access to pre-exposure prophylaxis, particularly to reduce HIV-related disparities. In addition to her groundbreaking research, Dr. Steckler has a cooking blog, UglyDucklingBakery.com, and it's a beautiful and engaging website that I highly recommend checking out. And with that, let's get started. Dr. Joanne Steckler, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's so good to have a chance to talk with you, and why don't we start at the very beginning for our listeners who are pre-med and might be curious how you specifically decided to become a doctor in the first place. Yeah, I am not someone who had doctors in my family. Both my parents were econ economics PhDs and they thought I was crazy in college when I decided I was going to change from psychology major to a biology major. You can't even dissect your chicken. And my response to that was, I'm not going to eat my patients. And so, you know, I decided in, I think, between sophomore and junior year of college that I was going to go to medical school. And the reason I just, I really enjoyed the biology and I really wanted to take care of patients. And I I wasn't going to be happy being a PhD like they were and and teaching full-time. So was there a specific instance or any specific instance that made you decide to go into HIV research and in that area of expertise? Yeah, well, there are two parts of that. What turned me on about doing work in HIV itself? And then how did I end up doing research? Because I ended up coming back to that PhD rejection that I did years later. I ended up having much more in common with my father who did economics research till the end of his life. And you know, academia is very similar regardless of what field. But the question you asked, how did I do HIV? And and I bounced around in medical school between, you know, I wanted to do oncology, um, so cancer work. I wanted to do, I think there was a pediatric neurosurgery period. I think there was just a doctor that I worked with who I really adored. But it wasn't until I did my medicine, I think our clerkships when I was a second year, so Duke did something strange. And I had an attending who was John Bartlett, at Duke. And I remember one of the times when we admitted one of his clinic patients, and this was 1993, something like that. And one of his patients who had end-stage HIV. And the thing I remember is that Dr. Bartlett knew that this patient loved strawberry and shirt. You know, when we think of doctors, like they are, they're so high and they're so, you know, like science-minded and they only think of, you know, the very sort of esoteric things. And one of the things that was really important to him was knowing his patients. And so one of the things I loved about HIV is that, you know, it's incredibly, there's so much science and there's so much 
that has changed over the last, we're now at 40 years. I just was writing this up for somebody. And the medicines, we have seen this revolution from medicines that didn't work at all to medicines that work, but made you almost as sick to starting to get these medicines that really help people get out of bed and live full lives. And now just this year, we had an injectable regimen so that people don't have to take pills every day. They've gotten so much simpler to take. So very science focused. On the other hand, we talk about, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You get really into people's lives and there's a lot of ethics and policy and you know, some of the work that I want to continue doing is trying to address the disparities that currently exist in populations, both for sexual and gender minorities, as well as racial ethnic minorities who are disproportionately impacted by HIV as they are for many things. So there was so much to bite into with that. Absolutely. And how does HealthMinder help you to reach out to the underserved populations that have difficulty getting access. If if you back up, right, like, you know, 1990s, the internet didn't exist. And one of the first things is sort of we moved into the 2000s is that people were using the internet to find sex. And you thought as a public health person, well, if people are using the internet to find sex, can we use the internet to help them access prevention and testing and research and all of those other things? And so I... You know, very early on said, I'm going to build an app. And I think I had $10,000 to build this app and try to help people find resources. But that's got me interested in what I'll put under the umbrella of e-health, electronic health, M or mobile health and other related technologies. And so in a partnership with Patrick Sullivan at Emory University, we did some work trying to understand what men who are at risk for HIV acquisition would want in an app, toy belt, you know, like they want sex diaries, do they want, you know, all sorts of other things. And it started off in the we're pre-prep, uh, so, you know, 2010 or something like that, thinking about how do we encourage people to get on regular HIV testing schedules. Recommendation is that folks who are sexually active should get tested for HIV once a year, and if they are at particular risk to get tested every three months or so. And so how do we help them get reminders for them to get an HIV test? So this app started off really HIV testing focused. And then when PrEP HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis got approved in 2012, that we incorporated sort of asking people about PrEP. And what we realized from some of our initial work with HealthMinder is that people were accessing the app for information and for resource, locating resources. And so what we're testing right now in the Southeast part of the United States is whether or not access to this app with information and assessments for, you know, what is your risk? Should you be on PrEP? Do you need post-exposure prophylaxis? And how to find those resources, whether having access to that app will get people on PrEP. And that's what we're testing right now. We're in the, I think, year four of a five-year project right now. Wonderful. So as you're proceeding through this in your personal life, you have this incredible, intense, work that you're doing and you're devoted to that. And so how did you find the time between that and being a parent and your love of cooking outside of work? How did you find time to start a blog? I always do too much. Short answer. Mm -hmm. I always do too much. (laughs) And whatever I do, I do it to the fullest extent that I can is the short answer to that. I think, you know, again, I'd always been cooking and baking all my life. And I think I started 
baking more and doing bread when my kiddo went to school and I had to start providing her lunches. I was like, we need bread. And you realize the store-bought bread is just not as good as something that you can make at home. And so then I started, you know, making bread a couple times a week. And it was the sort of sharing of this, all of my cooking on social media happened at the start of the pandemic. You know, I'd always been doing it, but, and occasionally I'd been, you know, post a, hey, look at this fun thing that I've made, but it wasn't every day. It certainly wasn't once a month. And then when the pandemic started in February and March as an infectious disease doc, I was trying to help my network, you know, I'm about 400 to 500 folks who are Facebook friends with me, who some of whom are docs, but many of whom aren't, to try and make sense of all of that information and fear that was happening in February, March of last year. And I started feeling guilty about how much of COVID information I was sharing. And I wanted to make sure that I was sharing some other things and decided that you know, one day I was like, let me ask everybody a question about bean burgers. Because while I'd been a vegetarian for 10 years in my past, and I love a good bean burger. I just find the homemade ones to be so mushy. And so just ask them, like, tell me what I can do to make my bean burgers less mushy. And my friends, a lot of whom are cooks also, start you know, sharing all sorts of, put it in cornstarch or add some vital wheat gluten or you know, dry the beans out. That was the answer was dry the beans for 10, 15 mm -hmm. minutes in the oven. And that really helps. I've also you know, added quinoa. There's a whole, you can read the post on my blog um, about all the steps that I've done. But, you know, it's not a beef burger. It's never going to be, but I think it's now a, a good vehicle for cheese and condiments and everything else that you want in a burger. Fabulous. Yeah, I love your post about the bunless burger. I'm inspired by that. And also your waffle, of course, is what originally caught my attention looking at your blog. I love your story about how you came up with the name for that as well. Yeah, it just makes me happy just to think about it. It's like that scene, the marriage scene in The Princess Bride, Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. But yeah, for waffle, you can't say that without smiling. Imagine them clicking their for waffles together at the end of that scene. The Mr. Ugly Duckling Bakery would like to take credit for my success with for waffle. I had been playing around with his waffle. I had grown up and never had a waffle iron. We made pancakes or French toast at home. And when he moved in, we all of a sudden had a waffle iron. Okay, let's use it. It was amazing. I don't know how I went 40 plus years without having a waffle iron. So I waffled everything. I waffled potatoes. I waffled chocolate chip cookies. That was a mess. I'm sure people can make chocolate chip cookies as a waffle without as much of a mess, but I'm just happy baking a chocolate chip cookie on its own now. We were talking earlier about your writing style, which I think really contributes to your blog as well. And I'm curious what your plans are for the blog. Do you plan to just continue it on the side as you're working or and just let it build or or do you have other plans? That's a big, I don't know. It has provided incredible amusement and education for me. I and mean, one of the things about me is that I'm a lifelong learner and I like to learn everything I can about things. So I'm still very much steep on my learning curve, both for blogging and for SEO search engine optimization, which is something I'd never heard about before, before January. Food photography, of course, I started off in a very, very bad place, finally upgraded my iPhone 6 to an iPhone 12. So I now have a 
okay phone camera, but I don't know. You know, I'm some years still from retirement. It's possible that this might be something that'll entertain me. I'm not going to be somebody who retires and doesn't have a plan. I'm probably going to be as active in retirement as I am now, just maybe something different. I haven't decided if I want to monetize it in some way. One of the things that drives me crazy about blogs are those pop-up ads, right? Like pop-ups and videos and things like that. Like I, I'm trying to decide if I can promise now that I'm never going to do that because I'm a blog user too, right? It, It annoys me. So if it annoys me, it's going to annoy everybody else. And I don't want to put ads that are going to detract from the experience. So I don't know about ads. Um, I'm contemplating sort of partnerships with products or, you know, do I want to write a cookbook at some point? I don't know. There's so much sort of like when you go to medical school and you're like, I don't know, you know, so I'm just going to be a doctor. You're like, there's so much you can do as a doctor. There's so much I can do. So I'm keeping it going for now because I, I don't feel like I've explored it enough, but I don't know whether or not five years from now, when I retire, will it still be there? I don't know. Do you plan to retire in five years? I'll tell the story, which is I'm an academic physician. And so every point in my career where there was uncertainty, would I get my K award? Would I get my R awards? Would I continue to have funding? Every time you you see that funding, like the guarantee of funding go away, you're like, I could just start a bakery. And so, you know, I've toyed with the idea of the backup plan. One of my uh, my colleagues is planning a dog walking business if and when the funding ever runs out. So we've talked about, you know, the ugly duckling bakery as a real entity for a decade or probably something like that. We have a second home in eastern Washington and there was recently a bakery up for sale for there. We thought, like, is it time? Do I do that? I'm like, no, I don't want to run a bakery, I think is the answer. I enjoy baking too much. I had a mentor. Bernie Branson, who previously retired from the CDC, who worked at a bakery, who told me once that if you love baking, you should never run or work in a bakery. Difficult hours working in a bakery. You know, I don't know how it compares to the schedule you already have, though. I think that once I actually retire, I think the goal would be to not be as scheduled, to continue to work and to, you know, to mentor and to to spend the time doing things that are important. But I don't think I'd want to be tied to any one thing where I would have to, I, I would just hate it, right? I mean, you, is, if you have to- The beautiful thing about a blog, definitely, that you could do it from anywhere and enjoy it on your own time and to, to the extent you choose in terms of where you take it. How do these different parts of your life as a physician, researcher, patient advocate, mom, and blogger intersect? Well, you know, I can't turn off any part of me. So something that I learn as a food blogger potentially might influence me as a doctor and vice versa. And I came up with, I think there are five things, rules to live by or advice that are equally applicable regardless of what part of my life we're talking about. And the first is Lesson number one, there are always going to be people who cheat, who take advantage of other people, who don't share, and who really are just climbing. And my advice is don't be one of those people. The second one that I learned in the last couple months is that it's really important to identify a niche. So this is something that as an academic 
physician, you learn very early on when you're starting fellowship. Everyone tells you, identify one place where that you can be the expert. For me, it was acute HIV infection, recognition of symptoms in HIV testing. And so if anybody had a question or needed a speaker or someone to review a paper, they would think, oh, I need to ask Joanne. And then as I've gotten more experience and more stable funding, I've been able to expand my niche. But really important to focus, again, both in academia as well as in blogging. And I think it's important that that area is something that you love and you're good at. And it's important to recognize that there's room for everyone in all of these worlds. Everyone has a voice. But start small and realize that you have to solve a problem for other people. One of the things as a blogger that I thought was, I'm going to all of a sudden be posting recipes and sharing my pictures and people are going to come to me and love me. And that isn't true at all. One of the podcasts I listened to gave the metaphor of going into Times Square and saying, look at me, come to me. And, and that's not the way it works. You have to identify a group of people, your ideal customer avatar for blogging purposes, and figure out what problem they have and what problem you need to solve. You know, not everyone can be the Steve Jobs of you know, identifying something that people don't even know that they are missing in their lives. Not everybody can be Steve Jobs, but there are lots of problems out there. And just whether it's in medicine or in blogging or in any other field, figure out what the problem is and try to solve it. The third, which I find so important, is about community and mentoring. No matter what part of our world we're talking about, we need to have community. We need to have peers we can talk to. We need to have people that we can learn from. And I think it's important to learn from senior mentors who have the experience. It's important to learn from your peers because they're going through many of the things that you're going through. And it's also important to learn from your mentees, especially as I've gotten older. I'm now working with younger folks who have a different perspective, and especially in social media. It is important to learn what, what everybody's doing and to, to teach and to learn what excites other people. So find your community, find a mentor, find people to, to mentor yourself. Then I'm learning from this blogging world that success is a combination of luck and being in the right place at the right time and recognizing that you're in the right place at the right time and running with something and being persistent about it. So I don't want to give you more details right now. I may have something in the works that I'm hoping to advance, and I don't want to curse myself. The fifth is don't be afraid of self-promotion. Now, don't be a braggart, but it's really important to let people know what you're working on because life isn't fair. We all think, I'm going to go and I'm going to do great work and people are going to recognize me for my great work. But that's, that's not, unfortunately, the way it works. You have to introduce yourself and introduce yourself to the people who make decisions and let them know who you are and let them know what you're working on and let them know about yourself because you know that's when your grants are being reviewed or your papers are being reviewed. They'll say, oh, I know Joanna met her at a meeting. And this is unfortunately the way the world works. So let people know who you are and what you're working on. Don't be afraid to do that, whether or not it's in medicine or on social media. But the caveat to that is turn off social media because it is the biggest time suck in the world. And once you get to the point where it's not advancing what your goals are, turn it off, go for a walk, go for a run, go enjoy the day, spend time with your family, and 
you know, at the end of the day, that's what we have. So one question I want to ask you before we go is looking back, knowing what you know now, is there anything that you would change that you would do differently? In my last 50 years of my life or the last year? <laughs> Particularly <laughs> in your medical career. Oh, gosh. If you were advising someone who's just starting out. So I think for me, it's, there are a couple of things. One is you're not going to be happy when, right? I thought I'll be happy when I finish residency. And it's really important just to be happy now, to you know do something that you love, to be in a place that you love, to be around people who make you feel good about yourself. And so I think prioritizing yourself and your happiness is really important and not sort of thinking it's, it's going to be better 10 years from now. I mean, there's a lot in medical school to get through, right? I, you can't take away the, although they're trying to, to some degree, to the, the overnight calls and the things like that to make it easier. But but really, it's important to be happy now. And I think as with anything, it's do something that you love. You know, it's if you're in a job that you get up and you hate it every day, you need to be rethinking what you're doing because it's really important to you know, feel like my job is who I am, right? Like being a doctor, being, being this, like it's who I am. And I, I love that. I don't just have a job that I get up and have to drive the bus every day. It's sort of how my partner feels about his life. Excellent. That's wonderful advice. I think a lot of people will take that to heart and maybe, maybe it'll make a difference for someone who's listening, uh, who might be able to rethink what they're doing and change their path if they need to. So. And I know that there are a lot of docs who are thinking about food blogs right now. I'm part of a Facebook group where people like I'm posting on Instagram and why am I not getting traffic? And you know, sort of, I, I think that there's a lot of interest in docs to share and there's a lot of frustration in medicine right now. And sort of like, how do I have this creative outlet when I'm being beaten down by all of the administrative requirements. And I, I think that's one thing that baking and blogging has helped me is sort of, I, I have this creative outlet. I never really thought of myself as a creative person. And so how do I, how do I share this? How do I learn? How do I help other people is something that I think is really important and, and people should just do it if they're interested in doing it. Right? There was one of the things from a previous podcast was about the analysis paralysis that uh, right, many docs right. get into. And that's true. It's sort of like, I can think about this for a really long period of time. Just do it, right? And you're never going to do it perfectly the first time, but you should just just start. Do it. Do If you want to be an artist, do it. Excellent advice. Yeah, I love it. That's terrific. I think having a creative outlet, whatever it is for you, is a tremendous resource on a day-to-day basis and actually plays well into the mindfulness concept of taking care of oneself. So, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. And actually we've, we've talked about some other, um, other topics that we may hit on in the future at some point, and I hope to have you back and look forward to talking with you again. That would be great. I would love to be back. We can update everyone on whether I'm still blogging. As always, thank you so much for tuning in to listen and to hear some new ideas on Doc Working, the Whole Physician podcast. I'm Dr. Jen Barna, and we can't wait to be here with you next time. Hello, and thank you for listening. This is Amanda Taran. I'm the producer of the Doc Working podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like and subscribe.
We would also love it if you checked out our website, which is docworking.com. And you can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. On Instagram, we are docworking1, and that is with the number 1. When you check us out on social, please let us know what you would like to hear on the podcast. Your feedback really means a lot to us. And if you're a physician with a story you'd like to tell, please reach out to me at amanda at docworking.com to apply to be on the podcast. Thank you again, and we look forward to talking with you on the next episode of Doc Working, the Whole Physician Podcast.